0: Joe Lonsdale is one of the most successful venture capitalists in Silicon Valley, not to mention a veteran tech entrepreneur, investor, and philanthropist. In early 2016, he launched 8VC, a San Francisco-based venture capital firm that aims to fix core processes for some of the world's largest industries. Previously, Joe was a founding partner of Formation 8, which manages over $2 billion across multiple funds. Prior to Formation 8, he co-founded Palantir, a multi-billion dollar global software company best known for its work in defense and finance. Lonsdale serves on the boards of several highly successful companies, including Adipar, OpenGov, Insurance Unicorn Oscar Health, Illumio, Radius, Hyperloop One, and Wish, which has a valuation reportedly well above $3 billion as of additional funding in late 2016. In addition to his work in entrepreneurship and venture capital, Joe is also the chairman of California Common Sense, a nonprofit dedicated to opening government to the public and educating citizens
1: about how government works. If you look at productivity, that's really the way to measure how fast you're replacing jobs. And so during some of the 1880s, I think it was about, someone will probably correct me here, but I think it was about between five and 7% a year that it was going up, and because we were becoming more, more productive by that much each year, and, that, and that's why the jobs are going away. If you look at it right now, productivity's gone up one or 2% a year for quite a while, which is actually kind of depressing. And it's because a lot of the labor's gotten trapped in these areas where innovation is not allowed in. Um, a lot of parts of healthcare, a lot of parts of education, Silicon Valley can't impact them because they're not driven by market forces, they're driven by other things.
0: In this conversation with Ivy's co-founder, Barry Merrick, Joe explained how entrepreneurship can help fix large industries and solve complex problems in an impactful way. Please enjoy our conversation with Joe Lonsdale. You're listening to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, The Social University. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us at membershipiv.com.
1: Well, I, I grew up in Fremont, which is like you know, 30 minutes that way, or two hours that way if you leave right now, but usually <laughs> 30 minutes that way, and uh, and uh, it was, I guess I was pretty lucky to grow up really in Silicon Valley. A lot of my friends' parents were building a lot of companies back then. Back then, it was the semiconductor companies that everyone was working on, but uh, a lot of my friends taught me to program when I was 9 or 10 years old, and we were pretty into math and chess and computer science, so we were really cool, and... <laughs> And uh, but 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 being around here and kind of seeing a lot of our people trying to build companies to solve problems was very inspiring. So I kind of got into this from a young age.
2: Got it. So from chess yeah. and math to being around San Francisco, and what was like a formative experience that got you like properly on the startup path?
1: Well, I guess we worked on a lot of things when we were fourteen or fifteen. I mean, we we coded a lot of games when we were younger than that. And then my friend's dad was at Intel, and he gave us a bunch of. Uh, Bunch of their chips for free to play with, and we built like this like cryonic system and to overclock. A lot of people overclock chips when they were younger around here, and they get really hot. And so you have to like get like liquid nitrogen and make them not too hot. And we, and we you know, try to build a company around that, and it was a really stupid time. So people gave my friend's older brother a bunch of money for it, and of course we blew it up. But but uh, I was just one of the kids helping out. But I, I mean I mean there's 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 a lot of things we did here as young kids where we would just try to build things, and it's just, it's just amazing. Like you could start from scratch, and you could and you could make 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 stuff work and. And you know, I, I guess the really formative experience for me, though, was when I was at Stanford Computer Science, I got to uh, be an intern at PayPal, and I ended up hiring a bunch of my friends to help me solve some problems there as well, and got really involved there. So that was, that was a really good place to learn. And, and I think you, know, you guys probably know a lot of the PayPal guys, but I, I was really more one of the junior people there. I don't get any credit for the company, but watching them and all the companies they built afterwards was, was probably one of the most important experiences in learning how this is actually supposed to be done.
2: Absolutely. Um, yeah. So. The mission here also uh, is around the world and what can be better. So we all know that there's been tremendous progress made in a lot of different fields, but a lot of work is still to be done. What do you think are like the primary challenges of our time?
1: Sure. Well, I'm very optimistic. I, I agree that the world has gotten just, just quantifiably much, much better over the last 100 years, over the last 50 years. I think all of us are, you know, I mean, there's exceptions in the world, but almost everyone's luckier to be alive today. Than at almost any other time in human history. Um, I think, way,
2: can you guys hear it back there? Is this working? Did we yeah, speak up as much as no mic actually Thanks, that's just recording you, so. mm-hmm. louder divider.
1: Awesome. Yeah. So so I, I you know, I I tend to think I, mean, I we talk a lot about like systems thinking. And with systems thinking, there's a question of like what are the things supporting everything else in terms of the biggest problems. And a lot of people who work on the biggest problems will focus first on on healthcare and education, because those are two obvious, very big problems. And th- I've done a lot in those, in those areas, as has Palantir and, and my companies. Um, the, the two things I've worked on, even more than healthcare and education, are probably government and financing. And I think government and finance don't get enough attention from Silicon Valley relative to how important they are. Because if you really look around the world and see where people are, I mean, where is the bottom fit the society truly the most miserable, it's the places where government is very, very broken, where government's not operating on the principles that needs to operate on in turn, you know, to make people successful. And then finance especially doesn't get enough love because everyone kind of agrees we should fix government. But finance just kind of reminds people of people who are money-grubbing and making lots of money and why does that really matter. But in a lot of ways, finance is almost like the free market version of government. It's just like very complicated system that allocates all the resources in the world. And that's a good thing. You want something that's a market-driven, open system allocating things. You don't want top-down allocation because that doesn't work very well. It it, there's lots of reasons why it doesn't work. So in the sense, that if we agree finance is important, then you want lots of smart people in it, and and you wanna make it a lot more open. And right now finance, in my mind, is a very, very corrupt thing in a lot of ways, because a lot of finance is the way it is, because you got people who got really, really big 100 years ago, and they created a ton of regulations to make it impossible for the rest of us to kind of break in and change it. And so there's just a lot of things to fix in government, a lot of things to fix in finance, just as much with these big institutions that have really broken it.
2: And what are the key ways in which, like what's the role for startups to play in all of
1: this? Yeah, it's really hard to summarize like one key way because right, the government and finance are actually both like 100 things. There's people who can start startups in all kinds of areas here. I think, I, think, I mean, I, when, I, when I think of a startup personally, it's, you know, we, we were talking about this earlier, I kind of think like the world in all these different areas, you could say here's where this part of the industry works now and here's where it would be if it was using all this data transparently, if it was open, if it was, you know, I probably should talk about more specific examples, but there's just these obvious conceptual gaps in the world between where the world is now and where we all agree it should be in all these industries. And a startup's job is to take a vision of here's how this can work much better for everyone and here's how this is more functional and like attract as many of the best people they can with different skill sets that they need to push that vision forward almost like a cause and to get enough allies in the industry, you know, from the community who can help and to make that cause win and make that cause succeed in terms of what it's trying to fix. And so that, 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 that's the way I see a lot of these companies.
2: Got it, and uh, so let's get a bit more specific on the government yes. and finance side. So. Um, you, t- you just alluded to entrenched interests being one of the issues, uh, lack of transparency being yep. another one. What are the other key, like very specific areas that you think that startups are going to make the biggest disruptions?
1: So, I mean, specifically, if, if you use example of finance, there's millions of people who are kind of serving as middleware right now where you should have technology solving the problem. And this is a really bad thing because what that does is it increases costs dramatically. So if any, There's a lot of financial products, a lot of other things that can't be accessed by the average person because they're really expensive, because everything's being done by hand. And there's a lot of, frankly, fraud. There's a lot of, I guess the other one I'd say is, this is maybe a little bit obnoxious, but there's all these fraternity guys, and it is mostly guys still, running around, making millions of dollars a year. These are people who failed out of our computer science classes but they're getting really well paid to be middlemen in the system because they've worked their way into these institutions that frankly wouldn't exist and wouldn't work that way if they were data-driven and if they were opened up and and using data to make the best decisions. So I think think ultimately you just find it's it's, it's a much bigger leech than it needs to be and it absorbs a lot more income than it needs to that it's it's taking out of the system. I'm a very positive sound thinker in general, but there's all these things that are bad in a zero-sum way because of the way finance works with too many middlemen and too many people profiting off of being in the center of the information flow. And, and there's a lot of startups working on cool ways of, of automatically distributing things with data. And, uh, and there's a lot of other people working on kind of getting to the core of the banking system, the core of the financial system, and, and kind of ripping those pieces out. I mean, mo- most of the banks were kind of built up as these like giant closed cities over the last 150 years. And they each have their own things that they're in their own city. That, that a lot of it should be pulled out and used as a utility and, and run more efficiently. So there's just a lot of different startup models that involve, well, all 23 of these banks are doing this. Let's have one thing do it instead better and have everyone work with that. And that's that's like the story of a lot of companies I'm seeing right now.
2: Got it. Got it. So <clears throat> just to uh, get us into like another area that sure. you mentioned to me earlier that you think is really <clears throat> important is um, healthcare. Mm-hmm. What What... Themes that you've already touched on as it relates to government and finance also
1: applies there? Well, oh, yeah, well, the the, the related themes, this is something I get pretty frustrated with, is that there's so many things in healthcare that should be open but aren't because people profit from keeping them closed. Like, I mean, 49% of the profits I think last year in healthcare were made by pharma companies. And pharma companies play a very important role in a lot of ways, but the regulatory apparatus has been set up so that there's just all this innovation happening here right now. Like, so, and, and pharma companies have set it up, so you have to work with them in order to go through a lot of these processes because it's too expensive otherwise. So, so, so right now, it takes $500 million to a billion dollars to get a drug approved through the FDA. And there's, there's just a huge amount happening. So, so this, this, this is one of the biggest themes. So in Silicon Valley, we always ask the question, what's possible now that was not possible five or six years ago? Right? So if you want, let's, let's just say you're a VC, and you, you want to invest in something that's going to be 100x or 1,000x, and you're you're looking at Uber and you're like, oh, I really, really wish I could have invested in Uber back when it was early. And, and you, you really can't invest in another Uber now. It doesn't make any sense because it's been possible for 10 years, right? There's lots of other, there's Lyft, there's Didi, there's all these other things out there doing it. It doesn't make any sense. And you couldn't have invested in Uber in 2004 because there was no mobile, mobile phone yet. So as soon as the mobile phone made it possible, there was like a three or four year period where a bunch of these companies were created, that being the biggest one probably, um, based on the fact that it was possible and it wasn't before. So the question is, okay, right now, I mean, you're a VC now, you can't go back in time and do Uber or Lyft or whatever. Uh, what can you do now that's newly possible? And to me, the answer to that question right now is there's been a lot of big breakthroughs in the, in the bio-IT area, basically in turning a lot of life science problems into information problems that were not information problems before. And this is, it's really cool. It's like a golden age in this area right now, of discovery. And we're interacting with a lot of the scientists from UCSF and Berkeley and Stanford and MIT And you you guys, I mean, we can go into this in probably too much detail, but you guys probably have all heard of CRISPR and how cheap it is to read and write DNA. There's just all these things you could do with the microbiome, with programming cells, with lots of other things around this area that are kind of growing exponentially. You guys probably saw there's cancers that 100% would would have killed people four years ago that the tests in the last two or three years we've programmed cells to, you know, to go attack and kill and save over 80% of the people. And that was the stuff we did with that three years ago with Kite and others is trivial compared to the stuff that we're figuring out how to do now. So it's just this is all happening so quickly, and there's so many new ways of saving lives. And uh, and the reason I, I, I mentioned this FDA thing is that there's so many of our companies who are making these giant discoveries and breakthroughs, and there's one of them that has like 20 new potential blockbuster drugs, but it's a new very early stage company. And they're basically only going to be able to do one or two of them right now, which is, drives me crazy because you could be saving so many more lives if we could afford to do maybe five of them right now or ten of them right now. But we can't because it's a billion dollars each because we've just set up this system which it's just ridiculously expensive and inefficient. So if you talk about where is the world broken, that part of the world is really exciting, but it's also countering these institutional things that are incredibly broken that are like costing millions of lives right now in ways that are really frustrating. And so... These are problems people are working on, but it's, it's very slow, it's very hard, and there's a, lot of, there's a big role for Silicon Valley to play in kind of pushing this forward faster because the, the, the faster we go, the more lives we're going to save.
2: Uh, so can you paint us a picture of the world as you see it, um, assuming that startups do what they're supposed to do and they're successful at <laughs> disrupting these...
1: Uh, well, I think, I think the thing we were talking about earlier... Is, is, uh, is this, this idea of tikkun, tikkun olom is one expression of, of this, and the Jewish tradition, charity—it's an idea of charity, is the idea of fixing the world. And I think the point is that you're always going to have to fix the world. So I'm not sure I can like paint a picture of a utopia to you. I think things are always going to be broken. But I think that right now, in particular, there's a lot of really big industries that have evolved over the last hundred years that work a certain way that we're going to have to kind of. We're going to have to rewire how they work. We're going to have to rewire how pharma works and how we develop drugs in this country and how that, what role government plays, what role the innovators play, what role that academia plays. There's a lot, I mean, a lot of things are just going to have to completely change about how that operates. That's true of a lot of parts of high finance. It's true of a lot of parts of how government works and how government budgets work. It's true of just all sorts of these areas. And so, I, I guess what I'd say from an investment perspective is. It's kind of an exciting time because a lot of old fortunes are going to be wiped out, frankly, which I think is a good thing. I think if you have lots of old money and you're stupid, you, you probably that's better for the world. Maybe for you not to have lots of old money, that's pretty obnoxious, maybe. But, but, but uh, I mean, and, and this this happened in the 1880s to 1910s, right? Like pretty much, you know, if you go back to like the mid 19th century, the British aristocracy probably had about 40 50 percent of the capital in the world, and they'd done a lot of good things that led them to that. They also done maybe things that aren't good, especially in today's you know today's way of looking at things. But uh, but then, but then they kept focusing on the same things and you had new industrial processes capture a lot of value and all the people who own all the land and all the people who, who had all these old, you know, fashion ways of doing things basically lost all their wealth. And that was actually great because you created all this wealth for society and we're all living much, much better lives as the common people than we would have been living, you know, back in 1880. And, and you know, just the GDP wealth went up dramatically. I think it's very similar right now where you have another period of this great disruption in the next 20 or 30 years. And it's, it's very exciting and it's very positive in general. It's also very scary because whenever this stuff happens, you, you're going to have tons of populist movements. You're going to have lots of disruption. Um, ultimately, we're all going to be a lot wealthier, is my view, and it's going to be a lot, lot cheaper to live. Like there's, no, there's not going to be material poverty in 20 years because it's going to be so cheap to have any kind of material poverty if all this stuff works, and so that's a very positive world. But I'm very scared of what these various types of populist movements from both the right and the left could, could do to us over the next 20 years while we're getting there, you know?
2: Definitely. So a lot of people are concerned. You talked a lot about, you know, cutting out the middleman, making things more efficient and so on. So employment is one area where a lot of people are concerned what will people be doing with theirs. You just mentioned, well, material wealth will be better than ever before. Do you have any concerns with...
1: Definitely. I mean, this is something that a lot of us are talking about right now. I recently published a piece in in, in, uh, Wired magazine talking about this where we we listed off kind of 12 new exciting possible jobs of the future. Um, You know, I think if you try to go back in 1880 and explain to people what happens when, when half of society no longer can work on a small family farm, you're gonna have some pretty tough arguments and people are probably gonna tell you, as they were saying at the time, how could you possibly say there's enough jobs for everyone? Everyone's always ever been a farmer or a craftsman since the beginning of time as far as we know civilization. How could you possibly say it? And you're telling them, well, there's gonna be this thing that's like MTV and there's, like, there's gonna be these air traffic controllers. Like they're like, what are you talking about, right? So, so, so I think it's really, really hard to convince people that the future is a certain way and, and it's going to be okay. But the, the thing that I think we have to come back to here is that maybe go back to sometimes this religious stuff is, is, is there's some wisdom there. And I think the idea of, of where there's always going to be a need to fix the world, I think that's true. And so if you think the world's going to have like nothing left for anyone to fix, then maybe you should be really worried about employment. Or, but, but otherwise, there's, I, think, I think there's going to be a lot of things left to fix in 20 years. That, that, that's my view of it. And so there's a lot of things for people to do though. The the area where a lot of Silicon Valley gets confused on the employment question is I think you have to divide it, you have to divide AI machine learning into two discrete areas. One area of AI machine learning is that we're at the singularity and AI is smarter than people and it's just complete, it's like creating a God and we've come to revelations and it's the end of time because people are no longer dominant and everything changes and we're going to have a great, maybe we'll have a great shared human consciousness and I don't think we should be worried about like, who has jobs or whatnot in that kind of you know, revelations thing. It's, like, that's, it's crazy, it might happen, it's, like a, it's kind of our generation's version of the Messiah, we talk about it a lot in various circles, but that's like, that's like this crazy singularity thing. And then there's the actual thing that's happening today and for the next 20 years, which is not the singularity, and which is that machine learning is not even close to doing what everyone does. And I think there's, in, that, in that world there's disruption, but there's tons of things that an average human intelligence can do that it's really powerful and that we shouldn't underestimate. And it's still, I think, very needed in a lot of ways. And so I'm, I'm, I'm very optimistic. And right now, I mean, really what's useful, let's talk about right now, there's, like, there's about 5.4 million skilled jobs unfilled in America because our educational system is broken and doesn't incentivize people to get the skills they need and instead sends them to these various colleges that they don't graduate from studying things that have no, they're not tied at all to relevant skills, right? So, so I think I think right now there's a entirely separate question. There's so many ways we can be giving people skills and getting them jobs. And, and the unemployment rate, by the way, is, uh, I mean, thanks. who knows if it's thanks to Obama or Trump or maybe probably not tied to either of them, but it's at an all-time low right now, right? So it's like, we actually aren't in that big of a danger right now, despite the fact that we're all panicking about it in Silicon Valley.
2: So in previous generations, you mentioned the late 1800s and so forth, there's been shifts with new technologies coming in and changing yep. employment patterns. But it is probably pretty unique in our time—the CRISPR and genetic engineering, recoding stuff. Do you think there might be any fundamental shifts to?
1: One, one, based on one of my favorite financial books is called "This Time Is Different." You know, so, like, and everyone always says that, and I, and I agree—it's different. But the, I think, I think there's, there's wisdom from the history there for sure. The lesson is that, I guess, for the last 300 years, every 90 years or so, we've replaced about half the jobs. So during this period of rapid innovation, you know, of the, lo- of the last 300 years you have continued to replace jobs. Um, it's interesting if you, look at, if you look at productivity, that's really the way to measure how fast you're replacing jobs. And so during some of the 1880s, I think it was about, someone will probably correct me here, but I think it was about between 5 and 7% a year that it was going up because we were becoming more, more productive by that much each year and, that, and that's why the jobs are going away. If you look at it right now, productivity's gone up 1% or 2% a year for quite a while, which is actually kind of depressing. And it's because a lot of the labor's gotten trapped in these areas where innovation is not allowed in. Um, a lot of parts of healthcare, a lot of parts of education, Silicon Valley can't impact them because they're not driven by market forces. They're driven by other things, right? So, so, you've, so you have these productivity traps that are actually ironically much lower. So, And, and, and here's, the, here, here's the part about this is the most ironic to me, is everyone's really worried about these scenarios where productivity goes really high and we start replacing and not needing jobs, right? This is what we're worried about. And actually, that's like the one thing that would save our country from going bankrupt in the next 20 years because we're in a massive amount of entitlement debt. And right now healthcare is 18% of our GDP. It's probably gonna be over 25% of our GDP in a decade. And it's just, I mean, for example, one of our companies is doing AI for pathologists and it would probably make it so pathologists can be 10 or, or even 100 times more efficient. And people are saying, oh, is that AI gonna replace jobs? And I'm thinking, no, it's the- it's the exact opposite, because if we don't make healthcare more efficient, we're not going to be able to afford it for poor people. It's like, this is so stupid. So, so anyway, like y- yes, yes, we want to, like, to be careful and worry about this employment thing, but actually we need productivity to go up so we can afford healthcare. So it's like, we got to be careful which side we're on there, because sometimes we're on the opposite side by mistake of the, of, of the thing we should be working towards. Um,
2: yeah. I'm sure everybody has lots of questions, so I want to ask just one more in the macro side. Sure. Um, specifically in healthcare, Like you talked about Regulation on best of the interest keeping a lot of things back uh, in finance, government, and so forth, and yes. including healthcare with pharma and so forth. But do you think there are some like serious ethical questions and regulations maybe needed, maybe not when it comes to Oh
1: yeah, this is this is a huge no, yeah, you're sorry, yeah. You mentioned that I didn't I didn't address that very well. Yes, this is a terrifying question. So so I was very involved in, in military and intelligence work, and if you go spend very much time with the people who run the DOD, they're terrified of China. And at first, it's like, oh, there's just like these naive old white guys and it's stupid. But, but you start looking at it, and it's very interesting with this thing in mind because, I mean, according to a lot of people I talk to, I'm good, you know, you know who you know, would know this, you know, the Chinese special forces have figured out a way to inject stuff into their eyes to give them better night vision, uh, which, okay, that's fine. That's maybe a little scary. But and, then, and then the other thing, and I, hear there's, and I hear there's tons of experiments to make them stronger, to make them not need sleep for different ways. There's, there's all sorts of genetic experiments they're doing. And you know what? It probably is possible for this genetic stuff to really enhance people to be much better soldiers. And, and you can bet, I mean, China's very smart. Right? They're, they're, they're doing it because that's what you do in that system because it's a smart thing to do. And we're definitely not doing it because it's completely against Western ethics, and that's, that's fair. But it, it becomes somewhat terrifying if you start thinking, okay, let's say they keep doing this for the next 10 or 15 years. Like, maybe they get to be just so much better. Maybe they figure out a way to enhance their intelligence as well, or who, who knows. Like, if, if you have all these enhanced, you know, Chinese babies versus my daughter, who's three months old, and you know, maybe, you know maybe she'll be okay, but, but who knows? It's like, we'll see. <laughs> uh, you know, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's a very tough question. And the question, what should we be doing? Like, maybe, maybe we don't do it except we do it in the secret, secretly for military, too, because we need to make sure our military keeps up. I, you know, I don't know. And, and there's a ton of questions around this in terms of a lot of people illegally traveling to do these things. And could you, you know, there's lots of things you definitely would want to do having a baby to protect them from certain things. Um, would you do other things to enhance or change things as well? I think it's a very tough question. And, and you're right, that is a very new reality for the world that I think all of us are going to have to deal with over the next 10 or 20 years. And, and it, it is very worrying if certain countries get left behind by not doing things because maybe we feel moral, morally compelled not to, but then there are others do. And then all of a sudden we're at a disadvantage. It's, it's a tough thing to deal with. So, yeah, I think there's going to be some fascinating questions that come up here.
2: All right, so we've covered a lot of ground in terms of yeah. like macro, big picture and uh, the theme of tonight is how to fix the world through entrepreneurship You should be more specific and, No, no, it's, this is great, <laughs> so setting the scene and before especially opening to the audience question the last thing that I do want to touch on is so specifically you know, you've built incredible companies like objectively speaking ones that have truly changed how a lot of amazing institutions do what they do and how people live their lives so can you give us an idea of like if you're looking to succeed through entrepreneurship, you know, startups is your chosen path to make the change in the world. What have been, like, the key things that you've seen that really work? So if I'm totally... Sure,
1: if I'm totally honest, I think having lots of really smart friends, you're good at convincing to do things, and then being really overconfident. I think those two are a really good combination. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if that's the two honest. But, um, yeah, and, and, and maybe there's, like, being really driven but to fix like actual problems like having maybe having strong opinions about this is a problem this is broken I'm really calm this is broken I've I've gone and talked to all these different people in my and like I've, I've you know I, I think going to talk to a lot of people is really important there's this thing a lot of new entrepreneurs do We're like oh, this is a really good idea I, I can't tell you because I, I you know I just don't want anyone to know my idea because it's just so good that that I'm worried someone else will just do it if they hear it and so, so imagine there's like something in the world where there's five people doing a company in the same space and four of them tell you that and one of them goes and just tells lots of people the idea and keeps iterating and keeps getting, the, you know, getting feedback on the idea. Like Who do you think is going to win? Who's going to have the actual best idea? Right? So I think it's really important to reach out, talk to like, anyone you can who might know something about this space and who you respect and who's done these things before and you make the idea better and better. So have, having a strong opinion, iterating on the opinion a lot and then, having, and then to getting a lot of really smart people who are smarter than you together in an equity-driven culture where they're obsessed and they're working hard to solve the problem and they're iterating. I mean, that, 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 that's kind of the high level, I'd yeah. say. That's great advice. The first yeah.
2: sentence you said was pretty, yeah. like in the shortest way possible describing so <laughs> you know, be, like I also have a mission and be very good at convincing people to follow
1: it. The team is the most important thing. It's like I, I always kind of wince a little bit when you say you built all these companies because I know I have friends who are smarter than me who actually built them that I convinced to help me build them and, and so it's, it's really... I think there's a lot of focus on like, the individual hero in our culture, which is fun, but the real way these things work is you bring together a ton of really great people, and you, and you make sure they have the right incentives, and they feel ownership over it, and, and then they take it up, and they bring in people themselves, and then it kind of goes from there. Yeah. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university.
0: We are the grad school for life.